Welcome to the Past Radiothon Tuesday Hometime Program with Jan Bartlett. A great response for Tuesday Hometime. And a reminder for those who haven't yet donated, it's not too late. 94198377.3cr.org.au. And after we've heard from Mr. Kevin Healy, I'll read out some of those wonderful people who donated to the program. But first, the second part of the interview with veteran US anti-war activist Brian Terrell, then Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network with issues from mice to mitochondrial, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees talking about our disgusting policy on refugees and asylum seekers, and Nick McClellan talking about what Macron and Morrison talked about while they were in Paris. But first, it is Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when we didn't need food or flood for the start again, I'm I'm just I've got a bit runny eyes. I've just got a yes. I'll just I'll just run a thing over them. Should be okay. All right. Let's hope we've now cleared that up. All right. Let's go again. Start time three. Four. Four. One, two, Whatever. three. One, two, three, four. A week, Jane Lister, when we didn't need flood, fire or rain to tell us we'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan. We just needed the bloody irresponsible fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like a con mission to hand a whopping 49 cents an hour increase to the lowest paid of the lowest paid, generating a stampede for smelling salts and oxygen masks in the boardrooms of the filthiest rich of the filthy rich. The true blue Aussie capitalist review P1 headline saying it for all of them. Wage rise to cost jobs, slow growth. Do those dullards on the Fair Work True Blue Aussie bench have the slightest idea what they're doing, the damage they are creating out there in the real world? 49 cents an hour, for God's sake, how can the economy afford that? Remember that number, not 49 cents, but that number from the pyjama game, 7.5 cents doesn't buy a hell of a lot, but give it to me every hour. Well, that would have been a lot closer to reasonable. True reasonable being no cents per hour, but 7.5 slightly higher than the hourly rate the caring employers believed would not devastate jobs and growth as severely. And remember, they want growth just so they can create jobs. Their sole raison d'etre, no concern for profits other than profits which help them create jobs. Expressed most rationally by our old mate Innes will cost the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group that the con mission is tempting fate. The decision sends a very bad signal and is likely to impact adversely on the recovery. We'll risk jobs and growth. And we suppose the only sensible insert into the decision was that it would not apply for up to five months in those sectors which employ a majority of the lowest paid of the lowest paid. Retail, for instance, for 49 cents an hour right now might lead some of those huge white goods and electrical retailers to, to enlighten us with, say, one less page or one less minute advertising and imagine what that would be like. Despite that, the True Blue Aussie Retailers Profits Association was distraught, pointing out the increase will come just ahead of the Christmas trading period, which is the most expensive jobs period for retailers. Oh dear. 
They obviously didn't think it relevant to point out that it's the most expensive jobs period because they have to put on extra staff because it's also the most lucrative period. So, so that must be irrelevant. Just think, let's get a bit of lateral thinking into this, just think how much better off we'd all be, how much jobs and growth would be generated if the evil unions and lazy avaricious lowest paid of the lowest paid had the foresight to offer to reduce the lowest paid rate by 49 cents or even substantially higher. Win-win. Innes, we asked Innes, when you say threatens the recovery, do you mean the recovery from trillions in government largesse? Uh, yes, sadly, government support has declined somewhat. Another threat to jobs and growth. That's the government that has no role to play in caring business. None whatever. Government should keep out of these things. Yes, that's another thing we just love about the caring business class. It's consistency, reasoned logic, lack of contradiction. Ennis, what does this decision do about the problem that has been keeping you awake at night for years, slow wages growth? Well, 49 cents an hour is certainly not slow wages growth, it's wages growth on steroids. No, this decision makes it almost impossible to reverse slow wages growth uh, by granting a 49 cent wage rise. Exactly. How much do you make an hour, Innes? It's none of your business. Sorry. He's right, it's none of our business. Looking after our business out on the big world stage, Big Supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo, invited to sit and watch, observe, seven of the biggest economies tell each other how wonderful they are, and it was a fillip to our patriotism, a true feeling of national pride to see Scummo provide a major contribution by making the others look good. Who is he? They kept asking as Scummo elbowed his way through the throng, a performance that would have got him about four weeks at the AFL tribunal. And a meeting with our head of state, which must have helped her appreciate the intellectual levels in the antipodes and stretched her lifelong capacity to talk without saying anything remotely worth saying, which may have worked in Scummo's favour when we think about it, a thoughtful nothing in response to a thoughtful nothing. The U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world big supremo Joe Biden capital also had afternoon tea with Her Most Gracious Majesty. And we can but imagine the in-depth conversation there. Joe and most of the others morphed into NATO in the same week that the True Blue Aussie's contribution to the Nobel Peace Prize ICANN, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, released reports highlighting the massive increase in spending by the usual suspects to bolster the coffers of the merchants of death. Now I raise this because NATO declared its European and US of members would have to increase spending on the merchants of death merchandise even much, much more because of the levels of spending to the same highly respected corporations by evil China. We do not want a new Cold War with China, the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo Boris Johnson declared, but it does pose challenges. Yet the US have already spent more on train killing than almost the rest of the world put together, including evil China, we put to Joe. And we will continue to spend more and more in our eternal relentless quest for peace on earth and goodwill to all men and uh, uh, all men and, uh, and women all of which would have welcomed the cockles of our Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive, Constable Peter Duffer. 
we can't have, you know, like all these very, very expensive, like, you know, toys for the boys without enjoying the, you know, like, fun, fun, fun of using them. Pete, as usual, made a lot of, you know, like, sets. I said warm the cockles of rather than the cockles of his heart. <laughs> well, obviously because of the grave doubt as to whether he has one. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin made its contribution to the quest for peace through more train killing in its report on the NATO-European Union get-together. A just describing the report headline on its world page. E, you must be kidding. Europeans refuse to condemn China on abuse. See? True objectivity. No manipulating an additional comment in an editorial comment into a straight news headline. Yet here's 3CR asking for our hard-earned just so it can continue the biased reporting it has carried on with for well over 40 years rather than learning true objectivity from Lord Rupert of Wapping and the other responsible media barons. Biased reporting like, well I hate to say it, but like the week that was. Speaking of objectivity, it's something we have come to expect from the state-caring business class and hayseed and cheapshit party's opposition. Incisive criticisms like, this is not good enough, highlighted this week by shadowy emergency services spokesperson Tim Smite the Socialists, who accused the government of not properly managing the storm damage. The pejorative damn socialist government is more interested in forcing Victorians to wear masks outdoors when alone than getting the lights back on for so many hard-working families who have just endured the socialist fourth lockdown. Brilliant criticism, Tipman. Don't we always appreciate their concern for hard-working families, like their deep concern when deep concern is needed for mums and dads investors, always preserved for proposals which might adversely affect rather more affluent investors, but then most of them would be a mum or a dad too, we suppose. One minor problem with Tim's devastating attack if I recall, and Tim seems to have forgotten, the public energy utilities, including the State Electricity Commission, were privatised by a former caring business class big supremo, Jeff Footinmouth, so they, so they stroke it, could benefit from the super efficiency of the private sector. The state, the public, have no say in it. So, Tim, maybe you could just expand on why you think the pejorative Dan Socialists are responsible for fixing up that over which they have no responsibilities whatever, and why the private super-efficient owners are not responsible for that for which they are responsible. Not doubting you, Tim, just a bit of an explanation of a seeming contradiction wouldn't hurt, wouldn't go astray. And don't think for one moment we're suggesting you're an idiot. Just a touch forgetful. Another privatisation, the airline which used to be our airline, privatised by a socialist government so it too could enjoy the benefits of the super-efficient private sector. The government simply couldn't afford to keep it, we were told. Well, good news. Since COVID broke out, the airline which used to be is about to chalk up one and a half billion real figure in corporate welfare in inefficient, bloated hand of the public sector handouts. I hope the long-haired commie greenie wooden work in an iron lodge don't suggest it would have been a hell of a lot cheaper to have kept the bloody thing in the first place. Just because it would have been a hell of a lot cheaper to have kept the bloody thing in the first place. 
as much of the world responds to calls by scientists and what would they know that action on climate change if there is is urgent by committing to doing something about it in 30 years true blue aussie minister for fossils keith pitpony told a fossils conference in western true blue aussie never give in to the activists slash anarchists who want to close down the industry and cut off its financing you need to make it clear why you're so important for jobs and the economy. Coal, oil and gas would dominate Trubler was the energy for eons. Leading the Socialist Party spokesperson Chris Bow into Capital to highlight what a fossil pit pony is. His case looking not quite so strong when the Shadow Minister for something or other told the same conference the Socialist Party is totally committed to gas, gas, gas also for eons which just goes to show that the right hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Thankfully, at 3CR, we, we at least know what the left hand's doing. Finally, the end, for, the end for the time being of Zion Big Supremo Venue and not another Yahoo, who at least claimed he supported a two-state solution to the problem of the Palestinian non-land, non-people, while making sure it couldn't happen, replaced by a bloke who opposes any land for the non-people at all, meaning for the non-people, nothing changes. Good afternoon. I'll read out some of the Radiothon donors, and thank you to all of them. Juliet Fox, Bruce Francis, Benny Gregerson, Teresa Greamer, Ron Guy, Barbara Hall, Emily Hayes, Lee Heather, John Kent, Ian McIntyre, Pierre Morrow, Brian Newman, Margaret Riley, Fiona Taylor, Cam Walker, Sue Wareham, and Wayne Wright. And thank you so much to all those wonderful people. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. New International Bookshop's Big Red Book Fair is back and longer than ever. The sale starts 9 AM, 21st of June, and ends 7 PM, 25th of June. Flat rate of $3 books of all genres in the back room. Sale also includes $1 secondhand zines, journals, textbooks, penguin books, and 10% off all new books. Get your radical literature cheap all this week. Visit nibs.org.au for details. A 3CR supporter. Next on Tuesday Home Time, Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. And Bob, a huge mouth's plague of major proportions and impacts has hit rural Australia. Huge amounts of animal feed have been lost and the rodents are so thick. There are their concerns for the safety of animals and also human infants. Yes, well, that's right. There is an absolute plague of mice in uh, rural areas of New South Wales and northern Victoria and now into South Australia. I mean, they're just so thick on the ground that they're eating everything in sight, including all the feed for animals. And there's even been talk of the need to find isolation units for infants who are threatened by this plague. Yes, it is a problem. And of course, farmers have been using baits and the the really heavy duty poisons were just approved as well. So I think they're a bit desperate and they've been grabbing at straws. Indeed, the the health minister, Adam Marshall, has just allocated $1.8 million to a CSIRO project, a genetic engineering project, 
to um, eradicate mice, which wouldn't come to fruition for about 10 years, but is based on a technology called gene drives, which drives bad genes through the whole population of a species, whether it's mice or rats or dogs or cats. Whatever you do, they reckon they'll be able to do. Unfortunately, of course, um, as well as wiping out animals locally, it can spread nationally or globally, and this is where we strike the problem. Is anyone looking at the reasons why? Well, no, not really. That, that, I mean, that's the real issue. Why do we get these um, plagues, whether it's mice here or Africa is suffering from locusts at the moment? And, of course, they're pouring huge quantities of extremely toxic poisons in there. And the spin-off from poisons, of course, is that humans themselves are exposed and um, some of these things are extremely um, harmful, either carcinogenic or just poisonous to humans, as well as everything else in the environment, uh, particularly, of course, the birds of prey, hawks and so on, that are at the top of the food chain, rely on mice and other small critters uh, as their main food supply. And, of course, if they're poisoned, they pick up the poison and they themselves are killed as well. So between the devil and the deep blue sea, really, if you poison things, then you poison the environment and the birds and animals in it. Uh, but this gene drive idea, interested groups around the world, the um, not-for-profit community groups are all calling for the gene drives to be banned. The research is going on very extensively, including here in Australia. Uh, in fact, the CSIRO is relying on funds from the uh, US military, which is the main funder of gene drive research globally, and you wonder why they are interested in gene drives. Um, CSIRO are doing the work in the high-security laboratory down at um, Geelong, which used to be the Australian Animal Health Laboratory, but recently changed its name to uh, focus more on... Um, on human diseases with this COVID and so on around. But we do know that the laboratories contain really some of the most hazardous pathogens in the world. I think there are lots of questions to be asked about that. We're not fixing the mouse problem very satisfactorily, but we also are creating these other potential disasters for the environment and public health uh, with gene drive research and other research on pathogens going on in our laboratories as well. Talk a bit more about what would happen to those animals if there is a gene drive. What does it do to the animals? It pushes a gene through the animal population, which, of course, when it's presented publicly, they say, oh, it's only going to sterilise them. But it can be toxic in other ways as well. It's very early days for this research, although the idea has been around for about a decade. The problem is that they... You know, they talk always in nice terms about, oh, we've got a problem of mice or rats eating animals and bird eggs and so on on offshore islands. So we'll do the work on offshore islands. It'll be contained and we won't have a problem with this spreading either regionally, nationally or globally. But we know how secure that can be. We saw it, for example, with the Caliche virus which was being field trialled on Wardang Island just off the coast of South Australia. And within a couple of weeks of them beginning the research, Caliche virus was on the mainland prematurely 
was, yes, wiping out rabbits, but it was a very unguided release and pretty ineffective as a result. So there's that kind of problem that it's being presented as a technology that can be a, a saver of the environment when, in fact, its underbelly is that it can wipe out mice or other rodents or cats and dogs or really anything that they will end up wanting to target as a pest in some local area. These animals, like mice, for instance, are a very, very critical uh, food source for birds and all sorts of other creatures out in the environment. Native mice in particular are part of the Australian environment. Would we really want to wipe them out and see our environment uh, in its complexity collapse? I really don't think so. But the gene drive is this idea of putting deleterious genes into the population of a pest species in a, in a small location and then taking the risk that it'll go national or even international because, of course, with travel and the movement of goods and services around the world these days, we've got huge biosecurity problems in all directions. And I think with gene drives, we would simply be creating another one. Can you remember another huge mouse plague such as this? Uh, not in my personal experience. It's a pretty rare event, I think. But, of course, there are plagues of all sorts of things from time to time. I mean, the Invasive Species Council and the government um, are very, very concerned at the moment about things like fire ants in North Queensland, which, they, which were brought in on a ship, which they think they could spread nationally. They're a monster. I mean, they will sting things to death, and the sting is very, very nasty indeed. So that's, at the moment, an isolated invasive species problem. You know, we did the rabbit, we did the cane toad, etc. things that were brought here deliberately, but the problem hasn't gone away. Australia is, is infested with invasive species of animals from camels, buffalo, rabbits, you name it. It's a pest in Australia. Most of them are out of control. Cats and dogs, of course, are um, out there and wild as well and killing wildlife. It's a very complex problem, but a simple solution that's proposed like gene drives is, I think, really, in the end, on the wrong track. They've tried various other strategies for sterilizing animals in the past. In the 1990s, immunosterilization using genetically engineered viruses was an idea, but it ended pretty abruptly when um, the researchers killed all their animals with the virus that they were working on and published a pretty nifty little paper saying, hey, guys, <laughs> look what we just did. We've created a biological warfare weapon, potentially. That's still remembered as being a case of science announcing a pretty potentially deadly situation. And, of course, this all leads on to what's being done in these laboratories where this work is being done. We've got four of the top security laboratories in the world in Australia, including the one in Geelong. Altogether around the world, there are 59 laboratories, including about 20% of them, which are working on biological warfare agents, like Fort Detrick in the USA is a classic, but there were ones in Russia and China as well, where... Um, 
accidents do happen. And the debate about whether or not the coronavirus came out of the laboratory in Wuhan is still a very live debate in the scientific community. And we now see that the World Health Organization and governments have started to recant on their earlier denial that no, it couldn't have come out of the lab. It was definitely from the food market or it was definitely from the uh, bat cave where people were working. A lab is a real possibility for the origin of COVID. And we may never know whether that actually happened. But what we do know is that we've got these 15-line labs with the most dangerous pathogens in the world stored in them being worked on to try to find cures for their diseases. But what they do, particularly nasty, is a process called gain of function, which has been the subject of huge scientific debate, uh, again, for about a decade or so, because gain of function research makes the pathogens more pathogenic, more susceptible to be transmitted and more virulent. That poses a real hazard and may have been the sort of work that was being conducted in Wuhan uh, that gave rise to the present um, pandemic. If anybody's interested, there's in the, uh, a recent conversation article, uh, which is the daily university articles. People can go on there and have a look. Experts from King's College in London and George Mason University were just writing last week about the potential of this stuff to have come out of a lab and uh, certainly haven't dismissed it as a, um, as a possibility. And when you think, Bob, that there are 59 of these high-security labs in 23 countries, you've only got to have one person not do the exact right thing coming out of one of those labs, and you're in trouble. Mm. Well, even maintaining the labs has been a real issue. One of the university labs in the USA, uh, which was in a basement, uh, was shut down last year because its uh, containment was just not up to snuff at all, and the potential for a leak was very great indeed. But even here in Australia, we've seen from the facility at Geelong um, a couple of very untoward incidents. Some years ago, one of the researchers was infected with Newcastle disease, which is not a human disease, it's um, a disease of chickens, got the organism into her eye and was sent home without treatment. And there was quite a little storm about that. Um, on another occasion, very sadly, a researcher was working there on a weekend and was caught in an airlock um, without any emergency backup or alarm and um, died of suffocation. You know, things things do, can and do go wrong. And um, indeed, the article catalogues some of the history of events, both deliberately and accidentally happening. For instance, one of the researchers in the USA some years ago did take um, a virulent organism, put it in envelopes and sent it to some of the leaders of the country. You know, that particular act of terrorism, I think it's fair to call it that, was not found out immediately and um, people were harmed. The security of the laboratory was certainly breached in that case. So I think we just need to approach it with great caution. And it's fine for our government and many other governments around the world to call for an investigation of the laboratory in Wuhan. Uh, did COVID come out of there or not? Uh, we want the Chinese to tell us. 
loud and clear what what happened and blah blah blah. But I think the way to approach this, uh, and there is an open letter which a number of scientists have signed saying, hey, hang on a minute, you know, we've got all these labs around the world, and we ought to be looking at them all. Uh, they all ought to be examined. The public should have a right to know what's being done there. Just let's get serious about our security because, you know, there are some things in there. There are some future pan pandemics waiting to happen out of laboratories, not just in China, but elsewhere as well. And I think this threat needs to be taken very seriously. It's a major biosecurity threat. And the world community uh, through the United Nations and the World Health Organization, I think, needs to get together, gang up on the 23 governments that have got these labs in lots of places. There are, there's no global standard about security. Many of the regulations are very weak. And the oversight of these things is far from satisfactory. So I think there's a case there, um, and we're calling on the Australian government to get its act together and take this threat seriously and get behind a global re-examination, not just pick the Chinese out um, as the culprits in this case. We touched on this last month, Bob, the mitochondrial donation law reform bill. It seems that the lobbyists have been working pretty hard to promote this. We've had the pictures of you know, sick children you know, just waiting for this bill to go through so they can be maybe cured. Where do you see it going at the moment? Well, I think it's interesting that you've picked up on the children who are sick because the bill um, is about prevention, not cure. There'll be no, there is no cure very few treatments at the moment from uh, for the people who are suffering from mitochondrial disease. There is no way to repair every cell in the body of a human being. But if you get to the cell before it becomes an embryo and before it becomes a person, the scientists are arguing uh, they'll be able to uh, genetically engineer the cell to make sure that the mitochondria are A-OK -okay, uh, and then culture that cell into an embryo and implant it in a woman and have a child born who's going to be free of the disease because the disease runs in families. Some families are saying we want our own biological children and I really want to question that because there are plenty of other ways for people to have kids, you know, adopting, fostering, having IVF with donated eggs and sperm, gene screening beforehand to make sure that the, um, the cell and the embryo are, are okay. You know, they won't be their own genetic children unless the husband, for instance, provides his sperm, which he can do because the mitochondrial diseases tend to run in the female line. You know, it all sounds very nice. We've got the Mitochondrial Foundation, which is a very, looks like a very cashed up NGO. And its main patron is Scott Morrison. Um, and he's been pushing this forward. The bill has the name of a, of a young girl who's suffering. She's sort of their poster child. But it's important to say that Maeve, who has got her name on the bill, cannot be treated with what's being proposed. And the real underbelly of this proposal is that for the first time, the germline, that's the inheritable parts of the human genome, uh, would be manipulated. So the children and the grandchildren and all future descendants 
of those people who were genetically engineered, first as a cell, then an embryo and so on, would be affected as well. And we don't know in what way they'll be affected, whether negatively or positively. And it, it opens the gate just ajar for other requests from more than 100 other groups that are also suffering various kinds of genetic disorders to also say to government, well, we want to have a go as well. The government in the last budget announced shortly after the bill was introduced, in fact, allocated $4.4 million to the research on mitochondrial disease. I should say what mitochondrial disease is perhaps too. It's actually 300, around about 300 different disorders of the genetic material which is not in the cell nucleus but surrounds the cell nucleus inside the cell casing. And it's described as being like the powerhouse of the system. It provides the energy for various functions in the body. And if it's defective, then you don't have enough energy to run your, to run your body. The thing is, the research hasn't been done yet. They're wanting to approve the research, but the bill would also allow any results of the research then, without any further public or parliamentary discussion, to be applied in practice, in clinical practice, in the IVF industry. So the IVF industry is a multi-billion dollar industry, and this is just being described as, yeah, they have these other options, but this is a new tool in the toolbox. We can probably fix people up. We can, families that have got the mitochondrial disease in their family history and probably in their future as well, can have their genes fixed. But the problem is that we're making decisions for all future generations. And this is where it gets really sticky. We're starting to mess with the human gene pool. You might remember in 2018, for instance, that a Chinese researcher in fact, did this with some human cells. And as a result, twins were born who were supposed to be IVF resistant. In fact, the whole thing was a bit of a furphy, except that the world community, legislators and the scientific community and the public, um, realized this is the first time we've designed a human being. This is the first time we've really influenced what the human gene pool contains, and all hell broke loose. The researcher was stripped of his credentials and his um, post at the university and is now serving a three-year jail term. The majority of countries around the world have, as, as Australia does, have laws saying you can't do germline gene manipulation that can be inherited by future generations. And the Australian community has never been asked They've just been told, oh, here's this research we can do on mitochondrial disease without being told the implications. And so I think we need a thorough public discussion. And what we're asking people to do at the moment, because it's coming up quite soon, potentially, is to ring up their own federal member of parliament and the senators for Victoria and tell them to vote no on this bill. And the reason this is important is that usually legislation is voted along party lines, but the parliament and the political parties have realised what a hot potato this mitochondrial bill is, what it's 
very significant implications are, and they've given everybody a conscience vote. So every MP and every senator will be making their own personal decision about how they're going to vote on the bill. And we'd like your listeners, and we're telling our supporters, take the time to go online, find who the senators for Victoria are, and you can easily do that by going on the federal government website, putting in your postcode. It will tell you who your MP is, and it will tell you who your senators are. Please contact them. Tell them to vote no on the mitochondrial bill. Are similar bills being pushed in other countries? Well, the only places really that it's had major discussion have been the USA and uh, in the UK, although it's claimed that some people are trying to do it illegally in Mexico as well. It's not totally clear. The USA, for the time being, has said it's definitely verboten. We're not going to allow that to occur. There's been a really serious public discussion and debate about there, and for the moment, mitochondrial manipulation is not happening. So in the UK, there has been, there was something of a debate, something along the very restricted lines of the debate in Australia about five years ago, and a bill was introduced, and the research on mitochondrial diseases was allowed to go ahead, but nothing has emerged from that work to date. So. I think we need to approach this very cautiously. Most of the countries have, um, have re- reconfirmed that um, they wish to continue banning any messing with the mitochondria. And interestingly, the International Association of Scientists who work on stem cell research, which is this generally this area of research, issued um, new guidelines a couple of weeks ago on a whole raft of different kinds of research that they do, including mitochondrial research, and they reconfirmed uh, their view at the moment that the technology is simply not up to the job, that it poses risks to this generation and to future generations as well. And uh, this global association of, of scientists working in the area have said, at least for the time being, mitochondrial research needs to be banned. Uh, so that support is very significant, I think. And we've certainly put it to the MPs and senators in our briefing, which we've sent to them a couple of weeks ago, that uh, they should vote no, that uh, there's no grounds for allowing this to happen at the moment, and there are many reasons not to. And uh, particularly that the Australian public has not been consulted. We deserve to be consulted fully before we allow this threshold to be overthrown because inherited deliberate genetic changes to the human genome are banned at the moment under the Cloning Act 2002 in Australia. And in our opinion, that should certainly continue to be the situation. We've got about three minutes left, Bob. What's happening with the Moreland City Council, just briefly? Uh, Well, Moreland have been discussing again uh, the very important issue of whether or not Roundup should be used for weed management in the in the council area. And it did go to a vote a couple of weeks ago that they would um, commission various research, not only on Roundup, but also other chemicals that they use for pest and weed management. Unfortunately, on the Green and Socialist votes, it was tied and the chair 
rejected the motion from that um, group for, for a thoroughgoing investigation of what should happen about toxic chemicals in the city of Moreland. But I believe it will come again. For instance, uh, one of the proposals was for the council to discuss with their lawyers and with the insurance industry whether the council actually is liable and exposed uh, to being sued if people within the council area use Roundup or are exposed to it and get non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The main evidence about the health impacts at the moment, which is the basis of all the cases in the USA, and there are 125,000 of them, rests on the, on the issue of uh, Roundup causing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I think it would be a good idea for Moreland Council to investigate whether or not it's got people within its community who may have been exposed and may already be suffering from the disease because the council uh, could be exposed having extensively used Roundup herbicide in the weed management programs and incidentally land care groups managing the creeks that run through the city are also using Roundup. So it's being widely used. There are now scientific, big scientific questions about its safety and its environmental impacts. And I just think that a, a thoroughgoing review is called for by all local councils around Australia. Yarra has done that review and is um, only using Roundup very, very selectively, not using it around schools and kindergartens in playgrounds where dogs and children are going to be exposed. And that's appropriate. And I think given a bit more time, Moreland will come to that view as well and hopefully will change its policies. There is resistance, of course, from the technocrats within the council who do the actual work on the ground. But I think that the community view, the scientific view is changing and Moreland will change with the times. We certainly hope so. And if you're living in Moreland, please give the council a call. The Greens and the Socialist councillors need support. The listeners can give them that. Well, that will be very good as well. Genetics itself has been going now, campaigning, educating and advocating for over 30 years, both in Victoria and nationally. And uh, we are having some wins, so that's good. Um, but of course, we need public support as well. We're a little non-government organisation Genetics is now approved by the Australian Charities and Not-Profits Commission as of a few months ago, so that's really pr productive, I think. And if people would interest, be interested in supporting Genetics at all, do go to our Facebook page, genetics.org. It's there, and uh, we have a little pitch on there. And also, of course, our um, website. If you go to the donate page on geneethics, G-E-N-E-E-T-H-I-C-S, Org. We'd be very happy to have listeners as members, and if you can chip in a little bit of money, that's always appreciated as well. We're doing great work, but we need your support. Thank you again. Thanks very much, Jan. Talk to you again soon. And we'll hear from Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network in a month's time. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Yeah. Absolutely. Nothing. 
independent and peaceful Australian network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance, its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au donate. 3CR Radiothon community-powered radio. And it's welcome back to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Macron and Morrison in Paris sat down to dinner. No guesses as to what the main topics of discussion were? The French President and our Prime Minister were talking about the Indo-Pacific. That's the new reframing of what used to be called the Asia-Pacific region and the, the focus on the Indian Ocean as well is a reflection of attempts to draw in India as part of the containment of China. So you have long-standing allies like the United States, Australia and New Zealand working together and seeking to uh, bring in other powers to, as they see it, stop the rise of China. Um, Concern over the militarisation of uh, the South China Sea, threats to Taiwan, uh, human rights abuses in China and so on. France is seen as an important part of this containment effort. Governments don't call it that. They talk about competition or, you know, dialogue with China, but really... It's about maintaining policies of strategic denial and keeping China contained. France is very much interested in engaging with the group known as the Quad, Japan, Australia, the United States and India. And the Quad met uh, face-to-face as leaders for the first time earlier this year. President Macron is very eager to engage with this group in the uh, Asia-Pacific region Indeed, when he came to Australia in May 2018, uh, he visited Australia and New Caledonia on his first visit to this part of the world, and he talked at the time of an India-Australia-France axis in the Indo-Pacific. So basically seeing that India, France and Australia could collaborate together as part of this effort to address 
the perception of rising Chinese power and indeed the reality of Chinese economic power around the world. And it was quite noticeable that um, one of the big drivers of this was France's interest in selling armaments to uh, this part of the world, to Southeast Asia, to India, to Australia and other countries. Um, when Macron spoke, uh, gave a press conference in May 2018 when he was in Australia, he was in Sydney Harbour on the warship HMAS Canberra. And on the deck of the warship surrounding him were arms, uh, uh, helicopters, uh, tanks and so on, uh, armoured vehicles rather, that had been produced by French arms manufacturers in Australia, like Thales and uh, Eurocopter and so on. Um, so he was standing there like a merchant of death, talking about the important strategic issues. But, it, you know, the picture says a thousand words. He was also talking about France's capacity to sell arms to countries like India and Australia. And one of the big topics of the uh, discussion between uh, Prime Minister Morrison and President Macron was about Australia's submarine program. That's not going too well, is it? It's not. The contract between Australia and France was originally announced at about 60 billion Australian dollars, which is not a lot of money, to build a series of submarines. Uh, this uh, was put out to tender by the Defence Department and Defence Materials Organisation some years ago. There were competitors from a number of places, Sweden, Germany, uh, Japan got to the, the final stage, but the bid from France was um, taken up. Uh, originally, by the corporation was DCNS, which is the um, national construction company, which was a state-owned enterprise in France. That's since been privatised, and uh, it's the naval group um, uh, that is the, uh, the contractor. What was a $60 billion project has already been raised to $80 billion Australian, and they still haven't started construction. And indeed, there's been significant disputes over the um, amount of um, Australian content in the work, not only the, the physical manufacture of the submarines, you know, laying the keels and doing all the steel work and so on, but in terms of the training, the intellectual property and so on. There's been major contractual disputes over the last year or so, and indeed, there are increasing hints in the media with the unnamed Australian officials threatening maybe it's time to walk away. Our Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, has already announced that they are looking at the extension of life of the existing submarines that we have, which are called the Collins class, after HMAS Collins, basically gutting the insides of, of the Collins class submarines and rebuilding them with more up-to-date sonar technology, more up-to-date weapons and so on, to extend their life. That's because the French-built submarines, the first of them is not due till 2034, and indeed, knowing the way these defence contracts always blow out the timelines, we may not get the new French subs if the contract continues until 2040 or something like that. There's a you know a 20-year gap nearly where uh, these strategic hardheads are worried that um, Australia's submarine capacity will be much weaker than, than uh, they want it to be. What would it cost the Australian government if they did walk away from this contract? Look, I'm not a legal expert on this stuff, but certainly there'd be a significant payout to Naval Group, and I think that's the behind the scenes, that's the discussion, people totting up the amount of work, 
not just the contract, but the time and energy that's gone into this in terms of public servants and uh, industry, you know, consultations. And, you know, it's a huge, huge business, this arms manufacturing. There's already a whole lot of sunk costs that would be sunk if the contract was voided uh, beyond compensation to Naval Group. Balance to that is if the contract blows out, both in terms of cost, and we've already added $20 billion from the original announcement, if the cost blows out further and if um, the uh, delay particularly is uh, more and more evident that the subs are not going to be delivered on time, then, uh, you know, I think there'll be a, a reckoning. And that, I think, is the message that's being sent to the French, that um, although the alternatives are incredibly costly and there'll have to be a payout to get out of the contract, they may be cheaper and quicker in the medium term than keeping going. So Macron and, uh, and Morrison are, um, uh, you know, the front people for a much larger discussion about, frankly, the way in which arms operations for the French groups like Naval Group, uh, Eurocopter, Thales and others, for the Americans, Lockheed, Raytheon and others, are very much beating the China drum to get dollar contracts by politicians with most stripes. I'll give you one example. Kim Beasley, former uh, leader of the Labor Party, former opposition leader of Australia, went on to become um, ambassador, Australian ambassador of the United States. Within weeks of him leaving his post um, as ambassador in Washington, he joined the board of Lockheed Martin Australia. And Lockheed is one of the world's biggest arms manufacturers. They make aircraft, a division of Lockheed makes nuclear weapons. Um, Lockheed Martin Australia is a major contractor to the Australian Defence Force. And their Australian board is stuffed with politicians and former defence, uh, senior defence people from the Australian Defence Force. You know, these arms companies do very well, thank you very much, out of the taxpayer with multi-billion dollar contracts. What's interesting is that companies like Lockheed and Thales are also major funders of the strategic think tanks that are so often quoted in the Australian media. So you have uh, a body like ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, boss uh, Peter Jennings and other senior people at ASPE quoted regularly in the media. And, you know, ASPE does some really interesting work looking at the defence budget. They're, they're, you know, interesting source of, of, of data and information. But they are so vehemently against China that um, you have to look at the agenda and just think about why are major arms companies like Lockheed and Thales, together with the Australian Department of Defence, spending tens of thousands of dollars a year funding a think tank like this? And, you know, the obvious question, what influence does the donors' contribution to ASPE have on their agenda? That's, a, that's an interesting Full disclosure, I've written for Aspie's blog criticising some of their stuff and they've been very kind to publish me. So I'm, I'm not saying that they don't have the right to buy into the debate. But I think, you know, it's very clear that when you have senior government officials like Mike Pizzullo, Secretary of Home Affairs, talking about the drums of war around uh, ANZUS-China relations, then you have to look at who's beating the drum. What about the issue, Nick, of like 2035, 2040 with these submarines might be ready by then. The world's going to look very different then, isn't it, for these submarines? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the obvious question is, 
if we're talking about security and well-being, there's a global debate about what do we mean by security. And there's a whole academic literature saying it's not just about national security, about state-to-state security. There's different types of security. And the obvious point that's coming for many, many commentators, both civilians, what about security, environmental security? Our neighbours in the Pacific say that the greatest security threat to them, both as nation states and as to individual citizens, is the threat of climate change. And indeed, for some countries, the smaller, low-lying adult states, they say it's the ex- existential security threat. Indeed, in 2018, the Pacific Islands Forum, with Australia in the room, released a declaration called the Boy Declaration from the district in Nauru where it was signed. And the Boy Declaration says that climate change is the greatest single threat to the well-being, security and livelihoods of people in the Pacific. The greatest single security threat. And so the obvious point is, if you're going to address that greatest single threat, then you should be putting resources into addressing the threat, just as the hardheads in the security think tanks say, the greatest single threat is China, we should be putting resources into China, which is why we're spending $80 billion on submarines. So this question of what are the major threats and who benefits by beating up different threats um, or addressing different threats is a fundamental political question. And what we're seeing, of course, with the Morrison government is that they are willing to address some threats but not others to people's well-being. And you've got a situation where our government has just been tagging along at the G7 meeting, the global meeting of seven major capitalist powers. We were invited alongside India, South Africa um, and Korea. Three of those four are from the Indo-Pacific region, uh, the invitees, but all four are notably people who've refused to sign on to this uh, artificial target of net zero by 2050 and net zero by 2030. And so, you know, part of the discussion at the um, G7 meeting was the recognition by major capitalist powers like Japan, the United States, the United Kingdom, France and so on, that they have to reorient their economies to this significant global threat, the threat of the adverse effects of climate change. You know, Australia's government is so compromised by uh, the carbon capture of government and policy making by the uh, minerals industry, by the fossil fuel industry in Australia, that even the Americans are outflanking us on the left, and it's pretty bloody hard for Washington to be way ahead. But you see media releases coming out of the Biden White House talking about the need, for example, to end funding from the banking system and from public finance, government finance, for the construction of coal plants overseas. And they're not talking about that in 2050. The communique talks about ending that sort of finance by the end of the year. Uh, by the end of 2021. Part of that is, of course, to put pressure on China, which through the Belt and Road Initiative is funding coal-fired power station construction. But countries like South Korea and Japan are um, obviously targeted as well by the measure, and the Japanese are going to have to try and wiggle out of major funding uh, through banks like SMBC uh, for funding coal-fired power throughout Southeast Asia. Um, The South Koreans have already announced that they're going to cut back public finance and bank finance for uh, coal in uh, Asia. This obviously impacts Australia and uh, the coal export industry to uh, Asia. 
which has been uh, for many years a lifeline of the national economy, uh, benefiting, of course, the transnational corporations that run our mining industry. But, uh, you know, more and more people, government as well as ordinary citizens that have been talking about this for decades, uh, are coming to the realisation that times have changed and we need to act now. You know, the signal failure of Australian security policy is that uh, governments are being dragged kicking and screaming to address significant threats like climate change that are global threats at a time that uh, incredible resources are being pumped into uh, containing China. And thanks once again to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And on the program next week, Nick will be talking about the decision by France to bring forward the third referendum vote for independence for New Caledonia. And some more of the very generous people who donated to Tuesday Home Time at the Radiothon program last week. And thanks to all people who donated to the Radiothon. Just a few here. Tim Anderson, Bert and Margaret, Meredith Butler, Jan Carr, Glenn Davis, Liz Dean, Marie Delora, Heather Smith and Don Stokes. And it's great to know people are donating to this wonderful radio station. If you haven't donated yet, there's plenty and plenty of time, so please 94198377 or 3cr.org.au slash donate. And again, thank you. Hi, Hi. we're from Rainbow College and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 94198377 or check our website 3cr.org.au. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. You're listening to an interview with long-time peace activist in the United States, Brian Terrell. And this is Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. What about your interaction with judges when you finally do get to court? Well, I think one thing that's happened in the United States is in the last few um, last generations, the things have changed a lot and uh, fewer than 5% of people who are in prison today have actually had trials. Most court cases are handled with much, with great dispatch. And generally what happens is the police put on all kinds of charges on somebody and then they get you to flee down. If you plead guilty to one, you know, you've got 10 charges against you, plead guilty to one, we'll drop the others. And that's what happens almost all the time. Uh, very few, and I, I understand why people take 
take those situations, even with uh, very small things like that in our local jails uh, here overnight, and somebody gets arrested for some kind of crime in the night, and in the morning, they're told, uh, if you plead guilty, you will get a $100 fine and a month to pay it. If you plead not guilty, we're going to keep you in jail until you come up with a $1,000 bond. <laughs> Yeah, to, to assure you know, your appearance for your trial. So people plead guilty, even though they're completely innocent, because they're going to save the time. Or somebody gets arrested for somebody says that you've been selling drugs, and you might not even know what cocaine looks like. But they've got somebody who's going to testify that you've been doing this. And so, but they say, well, if you, and you can't afford a lawyer, but if you say, uh, if you go to trial, you're going to go to jail for 30 years. But if you plead guilty to a lesser charge, you'll be out in a year. So people plead. So judges are not, they very rarely have trials where people are insisting on their innocence. And also what happens, the dynamic is very, very different. Usually people are appearing before a judge, uh, whether they're going to trial or just for sentencing. They are asking for mercy, and they are going to say and do what they need to do to mitigate the, the, their punishment, to make it less severe. And I think they see a lot of the people who come before them as people who are not in control of their lives. And then to have defendants who are articulate, who are knowledgeable, as I said when I was speaking in Kansas City at this, at this rally at the nuclear weapons plant, I find myself, I consider myself an anarchist in the you know, Catholic worker tradition, and it's very odd for me to be in in court over and over again, really defending the sanctity of the law before lawless judges, and lawless courts, because of course nuclear weapons are illegal. I think we, we, you know, we talked about the Plowshares trial in, in Georgia a couple of years ago, and the, uh, the judge there said this most amazing thing, said, first of all, that the legality of nuclear weapons was not going to be an issue that was going to be just The whole idea that nuclear weapons could be illegal is, is a very doubtful proposition. Well, of course nuclear weapons are illegal. That The whole notion of legality is an obscene joke. If the destruction of everything can be legal, of course, international law, all the, the Geneva Conventions, the decisions made in the, the, the courts in Nuremberg at the end of World War II, all say that uh, that any act of war has to be proportional, and it also has to defend innocent civilian life. And you cannot have any act of war that's directed toward destroying civilian lives. So how can something that will kill everyone possibly be legal? What, what difference, what, what does legality mean if that's legal and if trying to stop it can be illegal? So I think we, we will be found guilty in Kansas City and the court there for sure. But, but you know, the, the law is on our side. And, you know, I think sometimes judges, these issues brought before them and uh, that they might or might not have studied in law school and to, to have constitutional questions and international law and everything brought into the courtroom. You know, some judges are fascinated by that and will play along. More often judges, though, are irritated 
<laughs> they don't want to, you know, they don't want to think. They want they want to just rubber stamp things and and to be made to think and to be challenged. Then judges are people; they'll they'll respond to it in different ways, as they will. But then, occasionally, the result of those court cases are jail or prison. How do you mm-hmm. cope with that? I've been in jails and prisons. I've done about two years spread out over more than 40, so it's not all that much. But I did the last was eight years ago. I was in jail for six months in South Dakota for a protest at, at a drone base in Missouri, uh, a federal prison. Went to jail with so much privilege. One one thing is, is I was in a staying in a in a unit that had about a hundred men and I would be getting about half the mail of all the prisoners in that in that in that block. And also the fact that I was doing just six months and most of these people were victims of the so called war on drugs, separated from, from their families for years and years. So I I just always feel I really feel my privilege as and everything. Um it's a way of when I go to prison, I can, I've been very much educated and I've learned a lot about what racism means in this, in this country, but I haven't, my experiences have not been anywhere near, you know, I've, I've very much been a tourist in jails and prisons. You know, sometimes I've gone to prison for not paying fines. I usually don't, because again, that, that's, that's a privilege. That's what one person can put some money on, pay a hundred dollar fine and, go on with their life and another person is going to be in jail for for days uh, or even months for not being able to pay that fine so that's that's something i usually as a matter of conscience and i actually have a a warrant for my arrest right now for (laughs) for uh not paying a fine in wisconsin had an arrest at a drone base i just consider our jails and prisons are, are sometimes i feel some of these places that i can get do it only, you know, because the horror is just so amazing that, it, that, that it's almost unreal. That's just the, you know, the cruelty of, of how poor people are being treated in this country and, the, and, the, and its prisons. And when we have the United States, you probably are aware, has uh, less than 5% of the world's population and uh, more than 25% of the world's prisoners are here. You know, that, that we have more people in prison than China does, we have more people in prison now than the Soviet Union had in the, in the great purges of the 1930s. And nobody has ever incarcerated as many, the biggest section of, of its populations as the United States, something horrific. But I think part of it too, just is just the idea that, that I'm, when I'm in jail, like for not paying a fine, it's like that's still, that's my choice. That's a huge thing, that's a privilege that, that other people don't. Don't have those choices. Brian, you're hoping to go to Germany next month. Why? NATO has a very strange sharing agreement between the United States and some of the NATO countries, including Germany. And I was there two years ago at Buchel in the Eiffel border. And there is a German Air Force base there that has a uh, squadron of U.S. Air Force personnel who are caring for 20 nuclear bombs. 
the U.S. Air Force has no planes there, but the German Air Force has these bombers. And they practice loading these American nuclear bombs onto German planes so that when the order comes, these American bombs will be dropped by the German military, presumably on Russia. You know, it's, it's in contradiction. Again, the, the, the idea of what law means. When Germany lost World War II, and then again when Germany was united, they again were, um, you know, the, the constitutions of, of Germany forbid them from having any anything but defensive, anything but a defensive military capacity. They're not supposed to be able to bomb or evade anybody. So the idea that they have these nuclear bombs is a violation of their law. And also the nuclear non-proliferation treaty the United States and Germany are, are signatures of says that no nation should be giving nuclear weapons to another one or they know none of the signatories are supposed to acquire them from another another nation. The idea was that it was not going to be any more nuclear armed countries. So we have Germany, Italy, Netherlands, another number of other countries in NATO have these bases with American bombs. But um, in Germany, it's very problematic, of course, that it's not a violation of the law because when the order comes to drop those bombs, then the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, which was meant to prevent a nuclear war, will have failed. And so the law is no longer valid. And in a sense, that's true because when that order comes, if when the order comes to put those U.S. nuclear bombs onto German fighter bombers and drop them on Russia, it's over. You know, there's no sense talking about human decency or talking about a law or a treaty or agreement or anything civilized treatment of one group of people for another. It's all over and it's all up for grabs. You know, there's not going to be Nuremberg trials after World War III. It's, it's not going to happen. We're not going to survive World War III. So this is really a doomsday kind of kind of scenario that this is this is laying out. For the last years, there have been international demonstrations at some of these bases, and uh, I really hope uh, we're watching day by day. They, the, the German government is saying that they will be open for tourism in July, but the, the particulars have not come out yet. So I have not. Not got my ticket yet, but there there will be uh, Europeans there, and there are Americans living in in Europe who will be there uh, July, believe July nineteenth and twentieth, the, the big days. I think the second, seventeenth, the nineteenth of July. So I'm 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 really hoping hoping to go. And for years, last few years, what people have done is cut holes in the fences and to go in and go onto the runways and go onto the, the bunkers where these nuclear weapons are kept. I was arrested two years ago by the German military and after I was caught cutting a hole in the fence. And this military sergeant who spoke very good English and had been dealing with these protests for, for several weeks was very frustrated and said, you come to our country and you break our laws and you cut a hole in our fence. And I just said, well, you know, get real. So, 
my uh, government is putting these nuclear weapons <laughs> in your country, violating your laws. Isn't that important? So I cut a little hole in your fence to get in. When these bombs are used, everything is going to burn. And you're worried about a little hole in the fence. So you've got to have a bigger picture. <laughs> so anyway, they've, they've, they have fortified the fences. It's, they're no longer going to be able to get through with a uh, uh, bolt cutter like we could two years ago. So there's a, um, I think it's kind of symbolic. It's not that symbols are not very important, but there's going to be a, they're called it digging for life. We'll be coming with, with shovels. They're being painted pink, trying to uh, dig under the fence and to, and to get onto the base and to, you know, to, to, to resist this and to speak out against this. So I'm hoping to be able to join this, this effort. Um, I wrote an article about this on several sites. You look up with my name and if there are enough shovels to go around, because it reminded me of back in the 1980s. In 1982, there was an interview with a guy who was for the United States. He was the Deputy Undersecretary for Defense for Research and Engineering for Nuclear Forces. Told a reporter for the Los Angeles Times that Oh, dig a hole, cover it with a couple doors, and throw three feet of dirt on top. It does it. If there are enough shovels to go around, saying that, that we have a nuclear war with Russia, put your family in a hole. Two years will be back to everything will be back to normal. This is nothing to be afraid of. So we can so let's have our nuclear war. That was back in 1982, and I think quickly uh, Premier Gorbachev talked some sense into Ronald Reagan. Nobody else could have for. These last years, there's been a fear of nuclear war, and some people say that that's how nuclear weapons keep the peace is because the use of nuclear weapons is so unthinkable that no one's going to push things to the point where they, they might be used. We're in a very different time. The Pentagon war planners today are planning. They're talking about how, how we could win a nuclear war. The administration is asking for billions more dollars to, to, to make new nuclear weapons. Right now in Kansas City, they're making the replacements for the uh, B-61 bombs that are at Bushell and that, that, that need to be replaced. We're getting into a very, very frightening time of nuclear proliferation. So yeah, I'm hoping to get to Germany, but if I'm not, this is a similar base in the Netherlands in October, and I will probably be, I'll probably be at that one. And that was the second part of my interview with anti-war activist of many, many years standing, Brian Terrell. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 
proud black man Proud black man You should not wonder Strong spirit First Nations issues Families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective Mondays at 1pm on 3CR Proud black man Proud black man You should not wonder Hi, I'm Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002 and this year marks 20 years on the air. Be sure to tune in at 11am each morning from Monday July the 5th to Friday July the 9th for Beyond the Bars 2021 broadcast. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash Beyond the Bars. Thoughts within Visions I see Daring to dream My destiny Professor Stuart Reese's most recent book is titled Cruelty or Humanity and in the past week we have the prime example of the government's road plan, Cruelty. One comment was that the government keeps confusing gratuitous cruelty with efficiency and effective border control. Another, moral bankruptcy and cruelty. But as Stuart writes, cruelty beggars belief. Stuart, we've now got now what many people believe is a shameful decision to put the family in community detention while the younger child recovers her health. We had a government minister saying the health care on Christmas Island is broadly comparable with broader public health system on the mainland. What are your comments? Well, it's part of a long-term policy of powerful people and governments denying the truth of what's really going on. So under denial, they make all sorts of false claims to dramatise their virtues, when behind the false claims is the practice of cruelty took almost two weeks for a seriously ill little girl to receive the medical attention that she needed. They kept postponing, saying that the little girl looked fine, recommending Panadol and Nurofen when she had, it turns out she, she had pneumonia and sepsis. And then they claim that the medical services are the same on Christmas Island as they are on the mainland. If so, why was it necessary to suddenly and urgently fly her to Perth? Well, what does that say about the training of the staff on Christmas Island? Or are they obeying directives from the government? Well, I, I mean, I don't know about their training, but under the threat of a government concerned to build Australia as a fortress, there's a great deal of fear among public servants and professionals to fear to challenge the false claims of government. And the fear card um, is played by them 
by the government uh, all the time. So, um, you know, public servants and professionals like doctors and lawyers need to rise above that. It looks as though eventually somebody in a Christmas Island hospital did that in, in arranging for the little girl to come to Perth, but it took a long time to do so. And then we have the comments by the Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews, last week that Sarnica is not as sick as family and friends had made out. Well, that shows the, the depth to which this lot will stoop. This privileged white woman elected to Australia's parliament has the a kind of patronising, almost sadistic attitude to say that about this vulnerable little girl. If the general public are not impressed by that cruelty, are not dismayed, I mean, by that cruelty, I'm not sure what, what they will be impressed by. And just before that, they wheeled out Amanda Banstone, of all people, to give her usual lecture-like sermon to the Australian public as to why this should, as to why this Mr. Hawke shouldn't use his discretion. I mean, I've, I've just written this morning that Ms. Vanstone is the equivalent of the kind of people who were asked to um, throw rotten fruit at people in the village stocks a century ago in order to humiliate them. I mean, why, why do they need to trot her out? Uh, why do they need to kick people when they are down? Because that's what she's doing, and that's what the abominable Karen Andrews has also done by her statement in the Parliament. It's a shame that more people don't listen to the ABC. On 7.30 report the other night, they had the Minister Hawke and his performance that night. I'm sure you would have seen him. Yeah, I've written about it. I mean, Lee Sales was excellent. She could barely hide her incredulity of what he was saying. Look, look, this is a Hillsong gentleman, as far as I know. Well, call him a gentleman, whose dogmatism is part of his, uh, is, you know, is part of um, his attitude, is part of his conviction, and matches directly the policies of the government. You couldn't have chosen a more inflexible, deterministic character to um, be the cruel as possible immigration minister, even though he, he tells us about, um, what, what was it called, appropriate compassion or something like that? Um, I forget what the phrase was now. We thought Peter Dutton was bad enough. Yeah, well, he's, he's been watching closely. He served an apprenticeship. Now he's been, now he's been given the job. He, I mean, why we have put up with these cruel people, they're not policemen with batons and sprays. They're meant to be leaders in a uh, freedom of speech, freedom-loving, human rights-based democracy. But they, they seem to have forgotten that. And where they're going to put this family, we don't really know. They say it's community detention in Perth, but... Perth's a big place, and we know with other refugees and asylum seekers who have been put in community detention end up in the back blocks of the suburbs. And he, he scraped yep. the bottom of the barrel, didn't he, to get this one out? 
Yes, well, he he had to find the least generous option in order to please Morrison, to show that he was carrying out instructions. Mind you, it seemed to me that it um, uh, that piece of uh, that sort of behaviour matched his previous career when he was the leader of the of the young liberals. As to as to where they are, I'm not sure, but it's quite obvious that they're under certain restrictions. For example, if they um, if they want to um, make a, they're not allowed to, to to work, they're not allowed to study, must seek permission if they go anywhere other than within the bounds of the um, the place of detention. I mean, a longer term question. I mean, they're still threatening to satisfy. I'm not sure who they're trying to satisfy. Maybe the readers of the Daily Telegraph. They're still threatening to to deport them. Now, these are Tamils. I was spent a fair bit of time in the middle of that terrible civil war in Sri Lanka. At the end of that war, about 65,000 people disappeared. Probably as many as 100,000. They were almost all Tamils or and related opponents of the Sinhalese government and the overwhelming evidence is that that is is that the the process of quote disappearance unquote is still an arm of the Sinhalese government in Sri Lanka so the idea that they can be deported uh, to a place of safety is is wrong as well as being cruel and of course we're a great supporter of that government in Sri Lanka well, yes, we are because we don't um, we don't like to to raise questions about if we can sell arms, uh, have a close cooperation in terms of stopping people exercising their human rights, as in fleeing from persecution. Then this wretched government that we've got, this uh, and, and and this my my adjectives would apply to to any government that thinks cruelty. Is, is should be the centerpiece of their policies. We better go to the next question, James. I'm just concerned because this family are now non-citizens. Are they likely to be given a bill for the health care of the child? I would hope not. Although under the cover, under cover, nothing surprises me. I can't believe that. Um, I can't believe. What possible rationale that would be would be used to um, uh, send them a bill? I mean, the idea of generosity and human rights-based policies has become so far removed in this uh, policy of discriminating against people who are weak and powerless. But uh, I would hope that we wouldn't, because um, if we if we sent them the bill, it would be the equivalent of this. Karen Andrews person getting up in the parliament and saying that the child's illness has been exaggerated. I mean, it would be, let me think of the next possible step in humiliating these people. I'm just reading John Menager the other day in Pearls and Irritations, pointing out that over the last six, seven years, there are 67,000 unsuccessful asylum seekers living in Australia, they're not in community detention, they're not behind razor wire, but they came by plane. 
Exactly, exactly. And um, in thousands of cases, perhaps some of them not as meritorious as the Tamil family here, you know, the, the discretion has been used in their favor. So quite, quite why the antagonism to this family, I'm not sure, except it follows a practice of authoritarianism to pick on weak people and punish them. You can see that in every, in, in just about, in, in so many governments around the world. I mean, authoritarianism is, to, to democracies, as dangerous as COVID-19 is to human health. We have to resist this process uh, as much as possible. But it's getting that 60% of the population who actually support what the government's doing to get them to change because as long as there's that 60% support, the Labor Party is going to agree with the government. Yeah, although, I mean, I've written to Christina Keneally because she has had the guts to, well, she's had the guts to stand up on behalf of the Tamil family and, and, and had visited them on, on Christmas Island. Your question about what proportion of the public would support the government or not. I mean, I don't know in percentage terms, but I get the feeling that there's a groundswell of community support for the Tamil family. When the decision, when a decision is made in the, quote, public interest, unquote, ministers have traditionally had to assess what community support there is for an individual or a family. And, and that evidence of community support matches or seems to correspond to what they call public interest. And why in heaven's name it would be in the public interest to punish this family even more, I cannot fathom. Have you read anything in the Murdoch media or seen anything in the Murdoch media in the last couple of weeks to give the, the, the view that they're putting on this issue? No, I haven't. Um, uh, taking my cue from <laughs> what I read in Pearls and Irritations, in particular from previous uh, high-ranking secretaries in the Department of Immigration who are arguing precisely what uh, you and I have discussed in the past uh, 10 minutes. Well, what to be done, Stuart? Well, I, oh, my view is that only widespread public outrage has to be expressed. I mean, I've written to 20, 30 people and said to them, look, you must write to Mr. Hawke, right? And I've given them a copy of the letter I've written. I've said to them, look, you don't have to express your outrage with the same vocabulary that I use, but you have to get up from your comfortable chairs and, and, and stand up for these people and stand up for a fairer, better human rights-based Australia. If you don't, the cruelty that your, your silence is collusion with cruelty. And, and like, any, like any dissing out of punishment, it will come back to haunt you. We've seen that revealed in the inquiry into the sexual abuse of children, into the abuse of people with a disability, into the abuse of um, uh, the frail elderly, it will come back. It's already 
given Australia an abominable reputation in the eyes of the rest of the world. And it makes impossible uh, any Australian attempt to protest about human rights abuses in, in other parts of the world, in, in Belarus or, or Hong Kong or, or Russia or, 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 or America. We, we can't be taken seriously if we carry on as we are at the moment. But you use that word punishment. There should be no punishment because they are refugees, they are asylum seekers, and by not treating them properly, it's Australia who's breaking all the laws. Yes, but um, there's a weird, weird cliche about being cruel to be kind, uh, which is how the Morrison and Co. seem to justify their cruelty. They would interpret it as taking a firm stand against people smugglers. We need to demystify what is meant by people smugglers uh, in many ways, because as you say, there are over 60,000 people who, who've come to Australia by plane and um, who are living in the community, but there's no, there's no punishment dished out to them. I'm not arguing that they should be, I'm just asking a touch of humanity towards this vulnerable family. You just wonder when you you see Morrison in the company of all the world leaders or how he'd like to be, what they're thinking of him, because they don't follow those same policies, most of them. No, but around the world, I mean, the the, treat, the maltreatment of the little, of the three-year-old, now four-year-old uh, Tamil girl, that's gone around the world. People know about that. So Australia, as a as a bully, as a bully boy, as a big bully boy uh, in the southern hemisphere, you can see that almost in the in the style and behaviour of Morrison, even when it, when it, when he's overseas. There's a sort of arrogance, there's a sort of dogma. The apprentice now, the immigration minister, displays the same praise. Okay, well, thank you once again, Stuart. All right, Jan, I'm doing as much as I can, but um, there's not enough hours in the day. I'm sure if he could, he'd make some more. That was Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Banned School to learn more and be part of history in the making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. New 
international bookshops, Big Red Book Fair is back and longer than ever. The sale starts 9am 21st of June and ends 7pm 25th of June. Flat rate of $3 books of all genres in the back room. Sale also includes $1 second-hand zines, journals, textbooks, penguin books and 10% off all new books. Get your radical literature cheap all this week. Visit nibs.org.au for details. A 3CR supporter. I'm speaking now with Peter Murphy, who's the chair of Investigate PH, the international investigation into the human rights abuses in the Philippines. As they prepare the second of their three reports to be submitted to the United Nations Human Rights Council in July. Peter, first let's talk about the news from the International Criminal Court from the outgoing prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda. What has she submitted in relation to crimes against humanity of murder committed under the country's anti-drug law by security forces? The uh, outgoing prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, made an announcement last week that the preliminary examination of information about the complaints against President Duterte in the Philippines was complete and she was applying to the pre-trial chamber, they call it, for permission to launch a formal investigation. So this is where, instead of reading what other people give the ICC about uh, alleged violations of human rights, the ICC itself puts its staff onto the investigation. Uh, So, you know, it's a bit hard to... uh, describe the parallels in Australia, but really now the police are putting together the brief of evidence to enable a warrant to be issued. It's a a big step forward. It's sent a bit of a shiver, I think, through the government in the Philippines. But um, I think we also have to realise that the ICC has got limited uh, resources and the prosecutor made this point in the same statement. So... Her success has got a bit of a challenge, you know, in setting the priorities and uh, making sure this particular investigation, you know, goes as quickly as it can. Myself, I'm, you know, uh, sort of accepting that possibly Duterte's term in office will be over before uh, something further happens, but I, I hope that's not the case. Who supplies the information to the ICC? In this case, the different uh, allegations were put forward by Filipino lawyers on behalf of their clients in the Philippines. So in in this this matter, it was really the families of those people killed in the war on drugs. And um, we had two batches of those, and I think a couple of supplementary cases put forward um, before the Philippines withdrew from the jurisdiction of the ICC. But uh, as well as that, we had an International People's Tribunal happen in 2018 in September and all of the evidence from that was also provided to the ICC. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's probably the main sources that have gone to it. Uh, also, our own investigation, this is the uh, international, Independent International Commission of Investigation into human rights violations in the Philippines. Our report in March this year was also provided to the International Criminal Court 
and that uh, and plenty of cases uh, set out in it as well, uh, going back to the period before the Philippines was out of the jurisdiction. Duterte had to give one year's notice um, of withdrawal, and so it came into effect in March 2019. As you can imagine, you know that's three years of his uh, government, and um, there's so many, many, many cases of extrajudicial killing. As the prosecutor, she is leaving. What's known about her successor? Um, I don't really know too much, except that he's, uh, it's a guy. He's based in the UK, and he's very highly regarded in the international legal fraternity. And so I don't think there's many questions or doubts that he would be you know, really assiduous in trying to fulfil his role in the ICC, you know, and under the uh, powers provided by the Rome Statute. How difficult can Duterte make the investigation if he refuses to cooperate? Well, he, he basically will, and he has been doing this all along, refusing to allow anyone from the International Criminal Court to enter the Philippines. So this sort of uh, job of an investigator to interview people, to find documents, that's all much harder. But as I said, there's been a lot of work done. Uh, so this task to be completed, um, be mainly because the, the, the relevant legal standards have probably been met in many, many of the cases that have gone uh, to the ICC so far. And... Uh, we're dealing with historical cases now, as I said, up till March 2019, and uh, it's now 2021. You know, so uh, there's been time for the relevant uh, sworn statements, uh, autopsy reports, and so on to be uh, put together. Um, I'm hoping that, that this will, you know, mean that Duterte's own attitude, which is fiercely antagonistic, uh, will will not really block it. And if necessary, if necessary, the witnesses perhaps can can leave the country and be interviewed somewhere else. Again, we've got COVID-19, and that does limit international travel, but but that's an, uh, always an option. You mentioned that your first report came through in March. The second one is due next month. What will be in the next one? In the, in the first one, we had about 46 cases, uh, and so it was strong on demonstrating that human rights violations are ongoing, uh, even since June 2020 when the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights made a written report to the Human Rights Council about the Philippines. So the response of the Duterte government to that report was really to accelerate the violations. That's what our analysis showed. And uh, this second report is trying to go into, well, what, what is the deeper dynamic uh, behind this? And uh, we've come up with the perception of three wars. So there's a war against the poor that is in the guise of a war on drugs. We've got a war on the Moro people. Uh, in Mindanao, in the guise of the war on terror, and we've war on dissent, which is really the sort of main counterinsurgency program uh, long-standing in the Philippines, which is aimed at all government critics. 
uh, allegedly they're all communists and terrorists. And so, again, we've got, you know, really accelerating abuse uh, or violations happening in that as well. So we think all of these wars, in inverted commas, are connected. The method of uh, killing people in the war against the poor is now really being applied in the war on dissent. And um, uh, overall picture is one where we have a, a government which deals with problems, any problem, um, by by killing or persecuting people rather than of why people would be uh, in criticising the, the government's policies or proposing different policies. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how the report is shaping up. It's not completed yet, um, but we want to publish it on July 6th, so it's only a couple of weeks away, and so we're in the last phases now of uh, refining the, the text of the report. And where does the report go? Simply, it's aimed at the uh, United Nations Human Rights Council. It goes to uh, High Commissioner Michelle Bachelet and to the International Criminal Court, the new prosecutor, and to the Secretary-General of the UN Security Council. Uh, as well as that, of course, it will go to many different governments around the world. And the third report? I mean to do that um, by September. Uh, there is another third Human Rights Council and the third report would land just before uh, High Commissioner Bachelet would give an oral report to the Council uh, on the Philippines. So this is the, the next time that it, the Philippines is formally on the agenda of the Human Rights Council. So again, we, we are hoping to provide evidence again of the continuing violations of human rights, plus, again, go even deeper into the way that these events are violations of the various covenants and uh, treaties which the Rights Council is uh, responsible for. So, you know, it's, it's going to be perhaps a bit more analytical and a bit more on a legal side, um, but uh, that's, we hope, will we'll bring to a certain... Uh, level of uh, focus, you know, the overall case that we're trying to make that the international community needs to intervene more assertively uh, because the government of the Philippines is blatantly refusing or blatantly violating its actual responsibilities to the international community by its conduct. So your actual target for these reports apart from those bodies, is the international community? Yes, as a whole, you know, like the Human Rights Council is a part of the United Nations structure. It's, I think, 47 member states of the UN. Uh, they rotate a bit. So it's got the responsibility for the, from the UN for taking care of this area. And, uh, you know, uh, we're dealing with the idea of the international community and we have to then address the various uh, responsible bodies and leaders who, who've got the, the task of uh, watching, uh, carrying out, implementing the um, provisions of international law. And, uh, yeah, uh, the end result should be that the international community, which really means all the national governments, including our own Australian government, take some action. 
let's let's hope we we can push it that far, and that's that's certainly our goal. Just stay with the Australian government for a moment. Senator Janet Rice from the Australian Greens was at the recent Senate estimates hearings. What happened when she was there? What were her questions? I haven't seen the the video of uh, Senator Rice's uh, section there, but uh, I'm aware that she tried to raise the issue of how much Australian military aid goes to the Philippines and what is Australia's responsibility, you know, given this picture of the human rights violations. And uh, I'm pretty sure that the questions were referred to, like, well, we'll answer them on notice. Just remind the listeners, Peter, how we are in with Duterte in terms of his his treatment of the people because of the, the money, the military aid that we give him. Yes, well, the, let's see how to put it, the uh, repression uh, is really very much more systematic now than ever before in the Philippines. There are two structures for it, but the main one we perceive is called the National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict. And that's a combination of the military and police. They work together in that. Uh, task force and uh, the military are the dominant partner in that and uh, even though that sounds like it's ending in sort of some sort of campaign against armed rebels in fact it's it's really aimed pretty well completely at civilians and there's so many uh, dead civilians as a result already and um, the Australian military aid is it's a bit of a secret now what it is it's not published properly but we believe it's uh, at least $45 million a year, and it's the second biggest uh, source of military aid for the Philippines uh, after the United States. And um, there's, as I think, on top of that amount of money, we're training in Australia to about 170 Filipino military officers every year, and we also send military training teams to the Philippines, that is Australian trainers, to the Philippines to run programs of training to their armed forces there. And um, the uh, <laughs> the Foreign Affairs Department in Australia is, is broadly and continually, you know, making quiet or let, sometimes more open public criticisms of the human rights abuses in the Philippines. And they certainly, you know, at the personal level, when I engage with them, they're very abhorrent, you know, about what's happening and shocked at some of the cases we bring to them. But uh, when when we say, well, why uh, why is uh, Australia supporting this sort of uh, death squad operations, which we see in, say, Negros? And the answer is, well, we've got this long-standing, complicated, and uh, rich relationship with the Philippines, which we don't want to jeopardise. And as well as that, you know, there is the war on terror, and, there's, and we, we uh, you know, Australia is at war with IS, and uh, IS is in the Philippines, and therefore, you know, we're going to pursue that. But uh, when I say, well, there's no IS in Negros, oh, then they say, well, we've got nothing to do with that. We, we're not at war with the Communist Party of the Philippines, but you know, the actual facts belie that. That is, the Australian aid is. Uh, 
really a very important part of the capacity of the Philippines military to do what it's doing. And, um, you know, I think the, the Australian government is not really facing up to the situation that it's in. Finally, Peter, can you make a comparison to Australian aid to the Marcos regime and the Duterte regime now? Were they similar or different? There was aid at that time. Uh, that We're talking now about the 1970s and 1980s. But uh, what we're doing now is, is bigger, um, more uh, systematic and, uh, you know, thorough, I would say, than what, what was happening during the Marcos period. So uh, I think the fact that the reason for that is that we've, we've had the uh, 1990s, the Al-Qaeda, and then the uh, attacks on the U.S. World Trade Center and so on. So, you know, the United States, especially under the Bush presidency, really expanded its military uh, impact around the world and especially in the Middle East. And there's always been a Filipino factor uh, in that. So the Australian military also rapidly expanded. Uh, Australian intelligence rapidly expanded after September 11, 2001. So... I think it's it's you know far more significant today than it was in the Marcos period, but of course that relationship to the Marcos dictatorship was also very much a problem uh, in terms of Australia's actual record on human rights. That's what the the foreign affairs people are referring to, you know, the long-standing, rich and complex relationship we have with the Philippines. You know, it's really a case that the United States uh, is the sort of dominant international influence on the Philippines. It, it more or less really runs the place and especially in the military and intelligence aspect and Australia is an ally of the United States and therefore you know, we support whatever they're doing. That is really what is going on and uh, there's much less care about what happens to the Filipino people. That's, that's the truth of it. And, and we've got continuity in that all the way through, you know, from the 1950s to now. So it is a long-standing uh, set of relationships. And as I'm saying, I think it's far more intense and worse than ever now. Thank you, Peter. You've got plenty of work to do. Yes, we've got to keep on going with that report. Thank you very much, Jan. Thank you. Bye-bye. And Peter Murphy is the chair of Investigate PH, the international investigation into human rights abuses in the Philippines. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.